In this episode of the Transforming Society podcast, Helen Davis, Commissioning Editor for Law at Bristol University Press, speaks to Joshua Rosenberg about his new book. They speak about the role of judges in society and how the book helps to demystify the law. Ultimately, they come back to the key question that's also the title of the book. Are judges enemies of the people? Hi, Joshua. Hi, Helen. Thanks very much for talking to me about your book today. Thank you for commissioning it in the first place. (laughs) Um, So, Enemies of the People is quite a provocative title. Wasn't my title in the first place. I, I pinched it off the Daily Mail. You may remember that was the headline they had on their front page in November 2016, and it referred to three senior judges who'd ruled that government ministers did not have the power to give the EU notice of Brexit, of the UK's intention to leave the EU. In other words, you could only launch Brexit with an Act of Parliament. That was not what the government said. Uh, The courts insisted that Parliament had to pass legislation. People saw that as blocking Brexit, and people who supported Brexit therefore saw the judges as enemies of the people, not just the Daily Mail. There was a lot of critical coverage in other newspapers. And what was the impact of the way the media reported on that um, judge's ruling? I think it was damaging to the judges. It was damaging to judicial morale. I think it made it harder for the judiciary to recruit more judges, which is something they're trying to do at the moment. They're short. People don't want to be judges. Not surprising if they're described as enemies of the people. People take that sort of thing quite seriously. Uh, Politicians may be used to brushing off insults like that. But judges uh, start from the position that what they read in the papers is true and they just don't like being described in that way. So I think it was quite damaging. I think it was damaging to public confidence in the judiciary. And what was most damaging of all, and I explained this story in the book, is how the Secretary of State for Justice and Lord Chancellor at the time, Liz Truss, failed to come to the defence of the judges, something that they thought she should do as the member of the Cabinet who deals uh, with the judges, uh, and, and, and that was therefore a problem, and it was a very low point, I think, for the judiciary. I was quite surprised because, you know, I think, you know, today's newspapers, tomorrow's fish and chips, as we used to say, who believes what they read in the papers, but I think the judges took it pretty seriously, so much so that um, they had to call the police in to make sure that their homes were protected. It was a very tense time, and people didn't really know what to expect. And just as you were finishing writing the book, the judges were once again in the media as the Supreme Court ruled that the prorogation of Parliament was unlawful. Did you see a difference in how the judges approached their decision-making in that case? This was Gina Miller again, and this is the case that lawyers refer to as Miller Number 2, and in many ways it was a rerun. There was the Scottish aspect of it, and the Scottish courts handled it differently. But if we look at the courts of England and Wales for a moment, um, the High Court, uh, three senior judges, but hearing Gina Miller's case first uh, time round, they found in favour of the government they accepted uh, what the government's lawyer, Sir James Eady, said to them. I rather uh, punningly suggested they took the Eady way out. Uh, They did take the easy way out in the sense that they said, this is politics, this is not a matter for the judges. And that's the crucial question at the heart of the book. How far should the judges go and how far should they defer to Parliament? Well, that was what the High Court said. Gina Miller appealed to the Supreme Court And the Supreme Court overturned the High Court. 
uh, and found against government, found in favour of Gina Miller, found that the government's uh, decision, uh, Prime Minister's decision, to prorogue Parliament, to suspend Parliament, was unlawful. Uh, it was of no effect. It was as if uh, the Lords Commissioners who came into the House of Lords with a piece of paper saying that Parliament is now suspended for five weeks, it was as if that piece of paper had no effect. Um, and uh, Parliament therefore resumed. It was prorogued later without any problem uh, for another Queen's speech because it was prorogued for quite a short period. Um, But this was a unanimous judgment of the Supreme Court and the government accepted it, had to. Parliament accepted it, had to. Um, It's not likely to occur again. Uh, But it showed that at a very tense time at the end of last year with MPs uh, choosing to uh, pass legislation contrary to the wishes of the government, the courts were there as a backstop and they were determined to ensure that the law was obeyed in the way they, the judges, interpreted it. And so what is the role of the Supreme Court and how does it operate alongside Parliament? It's independent of Parliament until just over 10 years ago, the Supreme Court was the Lords. It was a committee of Parliament. It was quite hard for people to see it as independent of Parliament, and it might have been quite difficult for the Law Lords to have dealt with this prorogation case you just mentioned, given that they were members of Parliament uh, and sitting in a committee room uh, in the Palace of Westminster. We now have the Supreme Court, which is separate. Some people, some people in government, think the Supreme Court has gone too far. Some people think if you call it the Supreme Court, which we do, uh, borrowing the name from uh, another aspect of the English legal system, which has changed, then it sounds a bit too much like the United States Supreme Court. Now, the United States Supreme Court is very different. The US Supreme Court can declare legislation unconstitutional. The US Supreme Court can overturn legislation. The UK Supreme Court can't overturn legislation. They can interpret legislation in a way that ministers might not have wanted, but they can't overturn legislation. And some people in government think that if you change the name of the Supreme Court, call it the final court of appeal, then you take them down a peg and you discourage them from doing what they're doing. I don't think that will make any difference, quite honestly. I think judges do what they do. But the role of the Supreme Court, how activist the Supreme Court should be, how much they should interfere with the wishes of government, even the intentions of Parliament, that's really what this book is about. And that's a a question that your book just comes back to time and again. Did you think the Supreme Court would get involved in the prorogation ruling? I thought they would follow the High Court and take the easy way out and say this is politics and we can't interfere. What the government said was, how can you, as a court, say that five weeks prorogation is too long? Now, if you remember the facts of what happened, this was suspending Parliament during the party conferences when they don't normally sit, and was seen as having an effect on Brexit, given that the Brexit deadline was very close to the period when Parliament would resume. It was seen by complainants, people who brought the legal action, as the Prime Minister trying to stop Parliament having a say in Brexit, and maybe trying to prevent Parliament from blocking Brexit high political issues. And the government said to the court, how do you know how long a prorogation should be? Normally it's perhaps a week or 10 days. Sometimes it's been longer. Um, You're not losing many sitting days. Yes, it's a a tense time, 
But, you know, uh, the powers have been used by prime ministers over the ages. They're prerogative powers. They don't derive from statute. They derive from inherent powers that ministers have. And how can you say that Parliament um, isn't to be uh, suspended for five weeks? And the answer came back from the Supreme Court. Well, we don't know how long is too long, but we do know that five weeks is too long. We don't know how long is long enough. We don't know uh, what a good prorogation would be, what a bad prorogation would be. But we do know that five weeks at a critical time for Parliament and the Constitution and the future of the United Kingdom is too much. And therefore, this prorogation is unlawful. That was a very bold decision. It was a unanimous decision. I don't think anybody anybody expected it to be unanimous. I'm not sure everybody expected it to be the way it is. But there it is. That was what the court decided in these unusual, not to say unique, circumstances. Um, And um, it has consequences for the way the government sees the judges. But um, it was a way, in another sense, of redressing the balance which had got out of kilter because ultimately the government didn't have a majority and couldn't get its legislation through Parliament. And how did you personally feel when the decision was made that prorogation was unlawful? It was very exciting. I'm a journalist. And, you know, suddenly something you thought was, well, inevitable... Uh, and something which, in a way, you slightly thought might be in the court's best interest, because, you know, do you really want the judges picking a fight with the government, which is, to some extent, what they did? Um, Then suddenly that all changes, and you first of all hear Lady Hale rather proudly saying, on this, you know, we are unanimous, and you think, oh, what's been going on there? Whose arms have been twisted? What's been going on behind the scenes? Um, Because there were no leaks of this judgment, sometimes... Uh, judgments are given to the parties in advance. Sometimes they're given to journalists in advance. But, you know, we were sitting there watching her give judgment, as the Prime Minister was in the United States, getting up at 5.30 in the morning, as the Cabinet was, sitting around a television in the Cabinet office in Whitehall. We were all waiting to see see what the judges decided. Nobody knew. We really didn't. Some people guessed. Some people guessed rightly. Some people guessed wrongly. So it was very exciting. And as the judgment drew on, you thought, hang on, she's going to find in favour of... Gina Miller, she's going to say Parliament must come back. And, 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 and so she did. Um, and, you know, if there was any doubt, she made it very clear. Um, Parliament can come back tomorrow. And it did. It was very, very exciting. And you've touched upon there that it was um, possible to view that judgment as it happened. Um, so Supreme Court judgments are televised. Do you think that changes the way those judgments are perceived by the media and by the general public as well? I really think it does. Um, one of the reasons the enemies of the people case, in other words, the first Miller case in the High Court, uh, was criticised was that people couldn't watch the judges at work. Although the Court of Appeal in England and Wales can be televised, and although the judges who were sitting were sitting in the room that they normally sit in when they are making up the Court of Appeal, and they are the same judges who would normally sit in the Court of Appeal, they're very senior judges, um, because they were sitting um, at first instance, as the lawyers call it, in other words, uh, to hear the case first time round. Under the rules, as they currently are, it couldn't be shown on television. That was a great pity. It was a missed opportunity. And it meant that... Um, we couldn't see them at work, and people were speculating that they were going to decide the case along political lines. Another missed trick by the judges in this case was that the judges did not say, either in their judgment or in their press release, yeah, you know, we found against the government, but all you need is legislation. And at that time, uh, the government had a majority in Parliament, And indeed, it had no trouble getting the legislation through. So 
All it was saying to MPs was, this is over to you. If you want us to go down the road of Brexit, you've got a chance to say so. You've got a chance to block it if you want to. You've got a chance to put into effect the will of the people if you want to. Now, if the judges had explained that, or if somebody had explained that on their behalf, then the impact might not have been so dramatic. And the Supreme Court decision uh, led to much less criticism, partly because it was upholding the earlier judgment, partly because it was clear that Parliament would vote to uh, trigger Brexit in the way that the government wanted and needed, and partly because the whole hearing could be watched and you could see that the judges were dealing with serious issues and not dealing with questions of politics. And so do you think there's a greater understanding now of the judge's role in our society? I hope there will be after people read my book. (laughs) No, seriously, I do think that it's difficult to understand how courts work. Which of us can spend the time going into courts? Which of us has the opportunity? Certainly you might know something about criminal trials, uh, but you don't usually go into civil cases, and not many of us have the opportunity to watch the judges at work. Um, And I do try to explain from first principles... Um, how the system works, how our rather complicated, uncodified constitution works, how it involves a balance between the executive, the cabinet usually, uh, on the one hand, I'm going to run out of hands in a moment, parliament, the legislature on the second hand, and um, the courts on the third foot, if you like. (laughs) Um, uh, You have these three um, arms of the state, and on the whole they're balanced, complicated balance because Parliament is sovereign and Parliament can do what it likes, it can pass whatever laws it likes, but who decides what those laws mean answer the judges. But then if the uh, MPs and the government don't like what the judges have decided, then the executive, the cabinet can usually get legislation through Parliament overturning what the judges decide. And then you're back to who interprets that. So it's a, it's a continuing balance. It, it, it evolves normally. Uh, Last year, 2019, uh, things got very, very unstable. But I think we're back onto a much more even keel at the moment, although it is perfectly true that the government has made it clear it's unhappy with the extent to which the judges are being activist. And I think there are some people uh, who are supporters of the government who wouldn't mind the government uh, curtailing the powers of the courts, although whether they're going to be able to succeed in doing that, even through passing legislation, remains to be seen. Absolutely. So, I mean, you've talked about um, Brexit, the Miller case number one, and the subsequent proroguing of Parliament. And I think we can say that these are exceptional circumstances. So I'm interested in what relevance the book will have for the average person beyond these events. I look at a number of areas of the law which do affect ordinary people. And I look at how far the courts are prepared to give them a remedy and how far they're not. For example, suicide and and, and the law banning assisted suicide. Again, a lot of people who have been campaigning to change the law and have not persuaded Parliament to intervene have tried going through the courts. So far, they have been unsuccessful. Again, the courts say this is something for Parliament to do. But in other occasions, for example, fees paid by employment tribunals, if you lose your job and you want to take your employer to court uh, under laws passed by Parliament and uh, put into effect by a minister, Chris Grayling, um, you had to pay a fortune to go to um, 
uh, an employment tribunal and the number of cases dropped by two-thirds, not surprisingly. People who go to employment tribunals have often lost their job and they can't afford fees of £1,000 or more. And, you know, the, the court said that these fees were unlawful. Um, government rather unhappily said, well, you haven't told us how high the fees could be to be lawful. But again, uh, the Supreme Court said, well, we don't have to tell you that. All we know is we can see these are too high. They're unlawful. Uh, they're abolished. Anyone's who's paid them, anyone who's paid them can have the money back and there won't be fees in the future. So the courts are uh, grappling all the time with this question about when to intervene and when to say, no, this is a matter of parliament. And so within the book, you talk about judicial activism. And what do you think the proper relationship between the judges and society should be? I think when you get a very, very contentious issue like assisted suicide, people who are suffering from terminal illnesses and they want doctors to end their life, which is unlawful at the moment. Of course, suicide is perfectly permitted, but you have people who don't have the strength, the ability to end their own lives, and they want others to do it for them. And the law does not allow that. Now, there's been a lot of campaigning on that, There are arguments for and against. And Parliament has often found this far too difficult and has said, we don't want to go there. This is just too difficult. You know, yes, we want to help people who are in desperate straits. But on the other hand, we don't want to encourage people to go around, uh, you know, killing their grannies just because their grannies think that they're a burden on society or, you know, they're unhappy or depressed or something like that. These are really, really difficult social issues. And when um, uh, campaigners have failed to get Parliament to deal with these issues, the campaigners have gone to the courts. And heart-rending cases of people with locked-in syndrome, people who can only blink an eyelid, or people with motor neurone disease or wasting diseases, which is going to lead to their total shutdown, uh, but their ability to understand what... Terribly sad cases... And these campaigners have gone to the courts and they've said to the courts, you should intervene, you should find in our favour, you should change the law, you should take an activist approach. And the courts, on the whole, have said, no, we shouldn't. These are matters for Parliament. These are matters in a democracy that uh, MPs should decide. But then, of course, MPs don't decide because these are too difficult. And in many cases in the past, MPs have relied on the courts to get them out of a hole because, you know, the judges are not up for a re-election. The judges are not going to be criticised if they change the law, except perhaps they are. So these are all these difficult questions. Um, and on the whole, I think the judges are right to be cautious unless there is an absolutely clear-cut matter. Take uh, the question of what's referred to as marital rape. It used to be the law that um, a man could not rape his wife in the sense that if he did, it wasn't against the law. And the judges thought this is ridiculous. Um, There is no reason why being married to a man implies consent at all times and in all circumstances. This is not what we want in a civilised society. And the judges changed the law. Um, They allowed a prosecution of a man for um, having sex with his wife against her wish to be uh, uh, counted as rape. Um, they simply said they couldn't believe that the law which had been laid down over the centuries, um, which said that this is not rape, was still the law. Uh, And they just changed it. 
And everyone said, wonderful. Um, and nobody's challenged that. And, 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 you know, the judges concerned can be very proud of changing the law to reflect developments in modern society. But there are other developments which are much more difficult and where I think the, the judges are wise to be cautious. Do you think we'll look back on controversial decisions that are made now and, and be shocked by them? There are views um, that um, we are shocked by, which are um, not very long ago at all. Um, there were lots of cases that we referred to as gays in the military, uh, homosexual men and lesbians and uh, others uh, from minorities who were not allowed to serve in the armed forces under the law as it was um, unless they kept quiet about their sexuality. Um, and that was the law, and they challenged it, and they lost. Um, and then the Human Rights Act came into force in 2000, and that changed everything. As a matter of fact, before the Human Rights Act came into effect, uh, the people who brought these cases and lost here in the United Kingdom took their case to the European Court of Human Rights, and they won. And as a result of that, the government changed the law, and changed the law quite willingly. I think they were looking for an opportunity to say, well, this wasn't our idea, but now the courts have said we should. Well, we will, and they did. Um, and nobody would say uh, that you should be excluded from serving your country in the armed forces on the grounds of your sexuality these days, just as nobody would say that all soldiers must be men these days. Um, and so social attitudes have changed, the courts have sometimes been slow to catch up with them. Privacy is another area which has been developed by the courts very much over the years. Um, there used not to be a law of privacy, and now there is. So the courts can uh, keep up with changes in social attitudes, but in other circumstances, um, they think um, it's best to leave Parliament to decide. The example <laughs> I give in the book is divorce, where a woman called Teeny Owens wanted to divorce her husband. Very, very unusually, he defended it um, on the basis that she hadn't met the requirements of the law. Um, uh, she appealed to the Supreme Court. It was thought the Supreme Court might change the law in her favour. It did not. Um, she has to wait five years for a divorce because if she waits five years, she doesn't need her spouse's consent. Uh, she's now reached that period. Uh, and in the meantime, the government is asking Parliament to change the law, and that will happen, I expect, this year. Um, and so when Parliament uh, was given the, the, the ball by the courts, when the courts said to Parliament, this is one for you, not one for us, Parliament picked it up and is changing the law. And I think that's much better than bending the law, which is what some people hoped that the courts would do, because it looked to some people at the time this case was going through that the Parliament would not change the law. Well, it is, and that's obviously better. And your book explores key decisions that judges have made in recent years on controversial cases. What are some of the most interesting cases that you think your book covers? There was the gay cake case in Northern Ireland. Until very recently, um, gay marriage was unlawful in Northern Ireland. Uh, and um, this was challenged... Um, in the sense that there was a cake supporting gay marriage in Northern Ireland and there was a question of whether it was lawful for a Christian-owned bakery to refuse to bake the cake. And there were some surprising results. One of the things I, I do in the book um, is I hope that, even though these are recent cases, 
people may have forgotten which court decided what and certainly won't know how and why the courts reached the decision. So from time to time I pause and say to the reader, well, what would you decide in these circumstances? I mean, this case looked like um, the difficult balancing act between the rights of gay people and the rights of people of faith. Uh, and this seemed to be a contradiction between the two. It wasn't quite like that, as I explain in the book, but that's how it looked, and the question, which should, uh, which should triumph? Another very simple um, uh, case which looks to be uh, the rights of two people, both of whom have good rights, um, is the question of what happens on a bus when there is room for only either a pushchair or a wheelchair. Which should take priority? There was a case of a man who wanted to get on a bus in Yorkshire to travel to the station in Leeds, um, and he was in a wheelchair, and the bus could accommodate a wheelchair, has a ramp and a space, but the space was occupied by a pushchair. And the mother of the child in the pushchair didn't want to remove the pushchair, didn't want to fold it down, didn't want to put the child on her lap, um, and the man in the wheelchair was told, you can't get on, and he missed his train, and so on. Now, what should the bus driver have done in that case? Um, it's a situation we're all quite familiar with. But it went to the Supreme Court. I'm not sure that they came to a better answer than you and I would come to. Um, so you have these difficult cases where you've got rights on both sides. And how do the judges decide? And your book starts with an invocation for new readers to start here. You're obviously keen to demystify the processes of the legal world for people who aren't experts. Why do you think it's important that people understand the law and the role of judges within it? It's absolutely essential that people understand as much of the law as possible. And the reason for that is we're all bound by the law, we're all required to observe the law, we're all affected by the law, and we ought to understand why the law operates in the way it does. At one level, we want to know, for example, whether we are going to be able to claim a benefit for our children um, when we're uh, perhaps sadly bereaved, um, and whether it makes a difference if we're married or not. Simple question of law, what are your rights in certain circumstances, and what can the courts do to reflect the fact that people don't understand this, uh, people don't even know it. Um, so at one level, one's trying to explain what the law says. But another level, one needs to have confidence in the judges um, if society is to function as it should. And if people think that the judges are simply going off and deciding cases according to their political views or according to what they think, well, then that's very unfortunate. It's important that judges are seen to be um, uh, deciding cases according to the law. Sometimes they get the law wrong and they're put right by senior judges. Uh, sometimes they make mistakes. Sometimes they reach decisions that some people don't like. But it's important to understand how the courts operate and why the judges come to their decisions um, if we are to give the judges the respect that I think, I think society depends on. So coming back to um, our first point of discussion and the title of your book, um, do you think judges are enemies of the people? I'll let you into a secret. The book has a question mark at the end of its title. I really ought to pronounce it Enemies of the People, but it's rather hard to say. So I, I, um, I, I just add the question mark uh, 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 in the way that we're doing now. Um, but there's a, um, a little um, thing you might like to know, that whenever you see newspaper headlines which, say, uh, which end in a question mark, um, the answers usually no. And I think the answer, if I'm sure the answer in this case is no, uh, judges are not enemies of the people. And um, I've tried to explain why. 
Great. Well, we're looking forward to reading more about it when the book publishes soon. Thank you very much for your time today, Joshua. Thank you very much, Helen.